0: Metal episode 52. In this episode, I'm going to be doing another one of my series on each year of the decade, and this year I'll be looking at my top 15 from 2014. This was a really fun one to research actually, like 2014 much like a few of the others, was just a really brilliant year. Like, yeah, recently I put out a message on Facebook for some suggestions, and I got loads that I hadn't heard of at all, which were absolutely excellent. And actually, the really interesting thing is, despite having, you know, 50-odd suggestions for best albums, no one managed to come up with any that were in my top five, which I think just shows the sheer strength of releases that year. So before we get into the list proper, I'm going to go through a few Honorable mentions and other interesting albums from 2014. Uh, one one I got into more recently is the avant-garde music release Arcana Coalesces Nomas, which is a kind of weird funeral doom meets black metal meets kind of gothy industrial stuff. Just a really interesting release. It's got the classic avant-garde music production, which leaves it all feeling a bit muted, but. It's a very interesting bit of work, and if you're into the more long-form experimental kind of stuff, highly recommend giving this a go. Another really great one was Necros Christos' Doom of the Occult. They sort of do this bizarre mixture of pretentious black metal uh, meets, like, really raw old-school black metal. They manage to ram those two things together. Uh, the, The strange thing they keep doing, which always stops me truly loving their albums is they do the proper song interlude proper song structure throughout which can lead to some really interesting stuff but at some times it can just get a bit tiresome. Now an album I think a lot of people are very fond of is uh, Paul Bearer's Foundation of Burden. This was I think their second album and kind of was at the point where the band had clearly totally found their sound and really got into it and Honestly, if you like that kind of very depressed, uh, dark doom, this is such a kind of great example of it. Really big fan of these guys. I still get to see them live, though. I really need to get on that. There are two brilliant releases from Indonesia this year. We had Dead Carnation's Harmony Hell Decade, which is a great kind of... Sort of tech death with melodic moments, but uh, like there's brilliant guitar solos and bass work throughout this album. In fact, that's what like, really sells it is the kind of musicianship, like absolutely frantic double kick work throughout. One of the interesting takes this album has is the, the vocals are completely bizarre. I've never heard vocals like this in tech death, they're like this very high pitched like, almost pained, rasping sound over what is more traditional kind of modern tech death riffing. Well worth checking out. It's just quite an original release. Another great band for Indonesia is Jasad, and their 2014 album Rebirth of Jacinda is just a brutal kind of slam album, but, you know, missing a lot of the trappings of a lot of the American slam, like... Or, or even the Russian kind of sound of slam, really interesting. Uh, I got into these guys seeing them um, at uh, Bloodstock, in I think about twenty sixteen, and going back and finding his album afterwards. Yeah, I'm really impressed. If you, if you want to get into brutal death metal, like in the more traditional sense, these guys are actually a really good start point. One trend I sort of saw in 2014 was there's a lot of bands who made a move towards, or at least continued that direction, of going into more of a kind of prog rock away from kind of more extreme trappings. Uh, a band I mentioned a while back was Transcending Bizarre. They sort of broke up and reunited as Hail Spirit Noir, and their second album, E Maggie, is a- another great kind of descent into kind of doing. sort of the Aranzi Pazuzu idea of black metal meets old-school 70s prog, but they lean heavier on the 70s prog end of things and aren't quite so kind of psychedelic and maddening. But still some beautiful melodies going on in here and some really interesting song structures and vocal deliveries throughout. Mastodon continued on the direction they started with The Hunter with Once More Around the Sun... Which is it's a good album. I think I enjoy this a lot more than I enjoy The Hunter, but I I will never get past the point of them not being the band that did Crack the Sky. So yeah, I guess my opinion on this is always going to be slightly invalid. An album I truly loved in the kind of more prog rock direction from this year was fear's Uta. Um, they're like an Icelandic rock band they essentially used to be black metal at some point in time but now they do these very long form atmospheric rock songs with an incredibly unique vocal delivery if you've not listened to this album before that will be the thing that either you know gets you really into it or you'll just hate it but it's incredibly atmospheric it's just really really beautiful music and a band so worth seeing live if you can another band that continued down the prog rock direction in this year was opeth with their second of their sort of well now four prog rock albums uh this is pale communion pale communion is an interesting one because I, I recently saw someone on twitter rank um opeth albums from best to worst, and he rated pale communion as the weakest of their entire discography and these days i'd be tempted to agree with him while i don't dislike it i'd don't really dislike anything Opeth have put out. It is the most... what well, the least ambitious, I think, is the best way of saying it. It's a really solid rock album, but whereas Heritage was very experimental and played around with a lot of things, many of which I didn't quite get, but at least was trying this was them, they just released eight kind of straight-up prog songs. They're very well executed, but I... Yeah, I just don't find it's an Opeth album I go back to all that much. Another band who released like a kind of more straight-up rock album was Alcest with Shelter, and similarly to the Opeth one, this one just leaves me slightly colder than a lot of the other Alcest albums. It's very beautiful and very melodic, but because it's completely stepped away from the trappings of black metal, which their previous and later albums had, it's just somewhat leaves itself a bit unmemorable. It's very beautiful. It's re- like, if you like Alcest, it's still well worth giving a go, but it does have that thing of, like, there's no edge to it at all. It is one of the most melodic albums I think I own. Um, a cult rock album that's absolutely brilliant from this period was Occultation's Silence in the An- Ancestral House. If you've enjoyed any of that kind of blood ceremony, devil's blood type, female-fronted, like, rocky, sort of Sabbathy sort of psychedelic stuff, this is more in that vein. Really bass-driven this time, actually. It's just well worth a go if you enjoy any of that ilk of bands. A final couple that just sort of missed out on this list, Uh Zerif put out their third and final album, Free. Zerif are an interesting band, they sort of, they have elements of Devon Townsend, but elements of more extreme, kind of modern death metal as well. Uh, like, sort of a split between Cleans and Screams. Absolutely amazing, technically gifted musicians. And this album's kind of the culmination of their sound. I think people who were into them really loved this release. Unfortunately, I saw them live a few few times afterwards, and it was probably in the point where the band were starting to melt down, but they just couldn't reproduce it live, and thus, like, as a band, just sort of fizzled out, which is kind of a shame. Panopticon put out Roads to the North, which for a Panopticon album, is very extreme. Moments on this almost veer into kind of very raw death metal, almost. But there's still some some more melodic elements, like, just definitely a really good Panopticon album. And in a similar vein, Agaloc put out Serpent and the Sphere, which was their final album, and really brutal by their standards. Their last two albums, where they had Aesop Decker doing the drums, just had so much more punch to it than their earlier stuff. Not that it's necessarily better, I think possibly it isn't, but there is still some absolutely brilliant things on there, like Dark Matter Gods really stands out as a highlight. An interesting release this year in the realm of thrash metal was Exodus's Blood In Blood Out, with the uh, return of vocalist Steve Souza. Like, they just the band sort of revitalized, whereas on Atrocity Exhibit A and B, they were slightly treading water, like, us, making songs just way too overly long on this album, they cut the songs down tight as thrash should be, like to the point punchy and heavy, and made What For My Money is one of their best albums in years, probably the strongest of their entire comeback era, you know, Tempo Of The Damned onwards. One other I want to mention is Haken put out the Restoration EP, which many of you might have missed even if you're into Haken, but it's actually a really strong effort where the kind of reimagined a lot of ideas they had in their their very first demo into the fourth dimension, which is also absolutely excellent if you're willing to put up with terrible production. But they completely reimagined and restructured these songs to the point where one of them, like a 17-minute-long epic, is now like a regular live staple. Well worth checking out if you're into your prog rock. One final thing I want to note, just as a warning to people, really, Wolfs in the Throne Room put out their fifth album, Celestite. Which, because it's an awesome Throne album, I bought without questioning, I I was bound to be good, and it is just some dude leaning on a synth for over an hour, so unless you really want that, avoid it like the plague, I have no idea what they were thinking absolutely love this band but this was a direction change that should have come with a bit more of a warning okay so let's get into my top 15 now then at number 15 we have Tenji cavalry with ancient cool so tenzier cavalry are a chinese band who have been around for i think they formed in like early 2010 i've put out thousands of albums and this this happens to be the one i know well but It's a really decent one. So, essentially, what they do is they're part of that crowd of folk metal bands that kind of structure themselves around sort of thrashy kind of song structures with other bits added in. And what's nice about Tenja Gallery is even this late in the game, like 2014, they found a slightly new spin on folk metal, which is definitely a massively oversaturated genre. And the way they did this is to combine in a load of Mongolian folk elements. They're not the only band to do this, but they're certainly the one that got really famous for it early on. The The band's led by Nature, uh, who on this album does quite a lot of the stuff, like guitar, vocals, and he's also credited with some of the folk instrument, instruments. And early on, Nature recorded everything on the first couple of albums for Tenji Cavalry. Although... That might be why they don't sound quite as good as this one. In this one, he's fleshed out a full backing band of bass player, drummer, and then three other guys who support them on various folk instruments. The Dombra, which I believe is a kind of lute-type sort of guitar thing. Gives these almost like banjo-type, really fast-pick strumming stuff over it. And then the Morin-Kur, which is a horse-headed violin-type thing. Uh, But I think it's similar-ish to, I believe, an Urdu, one of those where the, the bow is sort of inbuilt, it's like hooked behind the strings in a way. Yeah, so the essential interesting element of this is, with this kind of like heavy, flashy kind of riffing that the the nature lays down, the guitars, you then have this really fast-picked um, dumbra, or like, what sounds essentially kind of acoustic guitar really quickly over it, giving everything this, like, really clear driving rhythm. And then the Morinco adds a lot of the, kind of, lead melodies. So not so much of the lead melodies come from the guitar. That's all, like, the riffing. All the folk instruments take up the more lead position. And nature goes for entirely, kind of, screen vocals throughout this. So... um but the the melody is almost entirely coming from the folk element of it, but like the groove and the riffing is coming from the more metal part of the band. There's also a lot of interesting instrumental sections on this. There's a lot of kind of just folky interludes, but they really build nicely into the tracks. And a lot of the tracks, like the more kind of true songs, start with a kind of folky build up, and then all the drums and bass will kick in. It's just overall, like, a really fun album. This isn't, like, totally groundbreaking, and it isn't really that far out of the folk metal mold, but just having those Mongolian influences on it just made it that bit more interesting to me. And and overall as well, like, it's just quite fun for its entire runtime. Like, the whole kind of 50 minutes of the album is really listenable. Not a good one to drive to. It will make you drive way too fast, as I've discovered in the past. Also, the lyrics are unsurprisingly entirely Mongolian folklore-themed, but, you know, that's fairly unplumbed depths in metal, so, yeah, really worth checking out. Sadly, though, there will be no more Tenjia Cavalry releases, because earlier this year, uh, not long after his relocation to America, nature took his own life, which was incredibly tragic. I'd only interacted with the guy a couple of times online, but he seemed like a really nice guy, and yeah, that was incredibly sad news. But, you know, he's got a whole brilliant body of work behind him that you can check out, and I would highly recommend this as a start point for that. Fourteen, we have Blutus Nord with "Memoria Vestusta free Saturnarian poetry. So Blutus Nord are a very long-running French black metal project in the highly experimental vein, pretty much entirely led by main composer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist Vinsval. This is very deep on their releases. They've got more releases I can count. They're kind of of like Ulva in that vein where just they have new... Like whenever Vinsvelde has a new idea, they'll release something and it's always strange and kind of often kind of alien to everything else they've done before. A running theme they have, though, is releasing albums in trilogies. And this is the final part in a three-part trilogy that's been going since the very early days of their career, unlike the 777 trilogy, which was released very close together. This, there's been like 10 years between each album in it. And this album sees them doing, I'd say, the closest of all the albums of theirs I know to a traditional black metal release. It's a 50 minute long album with seven tracks of kind of quite raw but very atmospheric, very... that kind of Norwegian style of black metal that feels like it's all about the woodland and was actually recorded out in some field somewhere. This isn't quite the case, obviously. Like, it's, it doesn't have that kind of ultra rawness of, say, those early dark frame recordings or anything like that. It's actually a really nice drum sound on this album. But it's all very rough production and very fuzzed out guitars and sort of mixed in such a way it's all incredibly background feeling. It's, it's an album that's very subtle and, like, sort of washes over you from a distance. It's not... It's not incredibly in-your-face at any point. It's it's not really a Bruce album by any regard. It's far more melodic than that, but would definitely be impenetrable, I think, to those who are fans of what I would term melodic black metal. It certainly takes more influence from that Norwegian scene than it does, say, the Nagmelflaz dissections of the world. Vinsvel is, as ever, brilliant on this. His guitar work is exceptional. He it goes between vocally a kind of more traditional black metal scream and then some kind of mid-range clean vocals that all sit quite far back in the mix and just continue adding to the atmosphere like i I have no idea what any of the lyrics on this album are about but i don't really need it It's, it's one of those releases that just paints an incredible picture just through the kind of continuous melodies and the the very like, complete atmosphere it creates, like, all the songs on it feel similarly in this kind of, kind of folky wilderness vibe to it. And this is helped massively as well by the uh, beautiful album cover, which is, a uh, another of very accomplished artists now, Kristen Necrolord, while, and, like well worth checking out and actually it's a really good release to get on full CD because there's loads of great accompanying artwork throughout the booklet and so on actually yeah vinyl would really suit this nicely I wouldn't say this is the strongest Bluetooth album I've heard in fact actually I don't think it's the best from the trilogy the second release in this trilogy I really love because it, it focuses a lot more on kind of almost soloing lead guitar throughout whereas this doesn't really have any of that all the, all the kind of more lead lead work is very subtle and muted, whereas the previous album gets into some properly impressive guitar work territory at times. But it is a properly beautiful release, especially if you're into that more atmospheric end of black metal. 8th album by the island-based band Primordial, Where Greater Men Have Fallen. Now, this follows in the kind of similar vein to a lot of their previous releases. They, you know, long moved away from being a black metal band into the realms of being like an epic metal band. I don't really know what to describe it as. I I was going to say folk, but it's, it's there's sort of a folky rhythm to most of their stuff. And the vocal delivery has that kind of feeling to it but they're a hard band to categorize really this is one of their arms that i particularly love i don't think it's quite as good as to the nameless dead but i'd probably say it's my next favorite after that this this album just gives us eight monumental like long building epics like and uh, kind of something they they've moved improved over time I guess uh, is the sound quality of all of this whereas To The Nameless Dead has quite a rough production to it this has just a really brilliant massive sound to it, like it's the biggest their guitars have ever sounded, like the drums are really clear and everything is right up in your face and Alan's vocals particularly are right front and centre in this mix plus Primordial always right for the vocals, they're they're a band where the vocal delivery and the lyrics are extremely important and all the songs are just there to, to give you that. Lyrics to this album, absolutely incredible. If you're someone who likes going through interesting lyrics, these are absolutely amazing. As a whole, it's just a really cool album. It starts with where the title track, Where Greater Men Has Fallen, which gives us this slow kind of build-up, which has like a really marching rhythm to it. And then just, yeah, explodes into an absolutely awesome epic. And that's pretty much true of everything along this album. And it closes with uh, Wheeled Lightning to Split the Sun, which is, like kind of an almost beautiful ballad for them, but just works so incredibly well. Like, th- I think this is Alan's best vocal performance on an album. Uh, the only sort of slight downside to it is a couple of the tracks in towards the middle, maybe drag a Little, particularly Seed of Tyrants. Seed of Tyrants is one that upsets me as well, because it starts with this yell of traitor, which makes me want it to be the best song they've ever done, but actually it's, it's slightly derivative of a lot of their other stuff but then so the single for the album Babel's Gate doesn't sound like anything they've done before like a really uh, interesting use of sort of a guitar solo in the middle of it which from I can't really think of another Primordial song with a a kind of flashy bit of lead guitar in it but it uses that really nicely around a kind of point where the song goes incredibly mellow and then builds back up to like a massive crescendo. Just all in all this is a brilliant release from Primordial and there are bands who as I said I can't truly categorize them they have a very unique sound. Number 12, we have the 11th album by the Polish band Behemoth. This is The Satanist. Now, The Satanist for the band saw a real direction change. I'm sure you're all familiar with this band to some extent. But The Satanist is where they moved from the kind of all-out brutality that had been like Evangelon and most of the albums before that, to be perfectly honest, to a far more kind of um, accessible Direction Like, the songs are still punchy and to the point. They're still blast beats. There's still really heavy moments. But this isn't as directly aggressive as some of the their predecessors. But weirdly for me, that doesn't actually let the album down. Personally, I think this is one of their strongest releases after, um, like, I think their fifth album, Satanica, which I fucking love. But that's a very different beast to this. With, with this one, Nurgle and Co have just really got the song structures down like they they're more inventive than i think they've been on most of their prior releases also as well like it doesn't have any of the issues i was saying with say demigod back when we reviewed that the it sort of sounds a little dated now this album has aged very well sort of five years on it still sounds like kind of incredibly fresh and the kind of thing a band of the scale behemoth now are like, the kind of thing they should be doing. Like, the whole production values of it are incredible. Beautiful guitar and bass tones for it. Obviously, without question, all the performances are incredible, particularly Inferno, who is just a really, really good drummer. Although, whereas, say, some of the earlier releases like Satanic are are very much carried by his drum performance, he doesn't kind of outshine everyone else quite so much in this. In fact, um, the lead guitar work is easily the best i've ever heard from them like behemoth rule is a band where their solos were never the most flashy they're always nicely written but on this they actually sound kind of virtuoso in places they're there are moments of just like hitting a bend just perfectly it sounds so good and it's still heavy it's still in your face but there's a lot more kind of emphasis on Those kind of interesting backing parts they often do, like where they were starting to introduce on some of the previous albums elements of orchestration and so on. This one they've really gone all out. There's a huge um, group of guest horn players and a couple of cellos, and then kind of other orchestral sampling over the top of things, which means a lot of songs, when they reach their crescendo, like for example, uh, the in the first track, Blow Your Trumpets Gabriel, when that reaches a crescendo, all these other instruments can come in and just give it a huge kind of urgency and importance. Later in the album as well, we see some really interesting ideas play out. Like, say for example, the title track, The Satanist, mainly revolves around this bass guitar driven, very mellow section. Like, I remember hearing, not long before this came out, sort of Nurgle saying how much he was into bands like Fields of the Nephilim. And this song really has that kind of old goth metal kind of vibe to it. And it, yeah, it just comes across really well in this track. Uh, the the final track, O oh Father, O oh Satan, O oh Son, just something really interesting where all the way through the kind of main verses, Nurgle plays off against like a kind of high-pitched clean vocal Line. It sounds very epic. It has a like almost religious kind of vibe to it, and then kind of play, then the album plays out with this long speech, I think, based on the works of Aleister Crowley. Obviously, the lyrics are all um, classic behemoth. He, he works very closely with Christos, as of which, who is a philosopher, and it has a lot of that kind of um, occult philosophy behind it. Again, another good candidate for buying the CD because. In the lyric book, there is explanations of all the songs and ideas being explored, and it, you know, I I always like Behemoth for having that kind of attention to detail in their music. I must admit, I've gone off like I've gone off of a bit. The latest album didn't quite work for me, and I wasn't so into their more recent live gigs. Although I should say, I saw them perform the Satanist and full at Bloodstock in about 2017, I think, and that was utterly incredible. It works so well as a whole piece, and I think that's testament to an album. If you can be a band as long into the career as Behemoth and play a set where I think they essentially played that and two or three other songs, and no one cared. Like, everyone I spoke to thought it was brilliant. It shows that this album must be, you know, near the top of their game. Obviously, they've got a lot of great releases under their belt, but there's just something about this album that I feel really stands out. It's just a pinnacle of their songwriting. by the Greek band Septic Flesh. These guys have been going since uh, about 1990, I think. I've always done a kind of very epic take on uh, death metal, but they really found their niche in to- with 2008's Communion, where they, rather than using kind of keyboard backings and so on, they actually started using a full orchestra for the backing to their music. So they do this kind of simplistic but very atmospheric death metal with huge orchestrated sections throughout, um, all written by guitarist uh, Christos. So, on this album, they perform with the Prague Philharmonic Orchestra also, the Prague Children's Choir and a further other choir, so like an adult voice choir, that is. These songs and the kind of atmosphere of this album are as epic as that would suggest. With this band though, they do have, similarly to say a band like Flesh God Apocalypse, there's still enough space in this where it, they are just an extreme metal band as well as having this beautifully orchestrated stuff. The first track of the album, War in Heaven, is a perfect example of this. After, like, a minute build-up of cool string sections and so on, all the guitars and drums come in, uh, complete with the really guttural death metal vocals, and it all just mixes together to make an incredibly epic sound. There's no other way to really describe this. And actually, this album is a perfect partner to one, like, Behemoths the Satanist, where it's trying to do huge, sounding extreme metal in almost a kind of cinematic way and I think the two albums are both attempt to do that. I'd say Septic Flesh, for my money, get there a bit better, but that's probably just because the orchestration sounds incredible. But the thing is guitarist really does know how to write for an orchestra. This isn't just that kind of thing where oh, we've got an orchestra in to literally just mimic the part we would have played in the synth, but in a bigger way. There is incredibly complex orchestration going on around these songs, which actually showed off well if you get the um, extended version of this album. There's a, like, essentially EP attached to it called the Titan Symphony, which is five of the tracks from the album restructured for just an orchestra. So with more or less no vocals, maybe just the choir parts or some of the clean vocals over it, but otherwise, entirely orchestrated, and it's brilliant. It's re Look, it's a really beautiful 25 minutes, which kind of shows like both halves of this band could pretty much stand alone. One of the the other guitarist, Satoris, adds some kind of almost like Bowie esque clean vocals, uh, which which leads some of the choruses or play off Seth's like harsher harsher vocals in it. Also, the, the thing with Septic Flesh again, much like Behemoth, is the aesthetics really good. Like these guys have these fantastic Bram Stokely's Dracula-inspired costumes, and like on the back of the album cover, they're all standing there looking sort of ridiculously cool and ridiculously stupid at the same time. In the you know that fine line costume metal always treads, but it does just fit with everything on this. is huge and powerful. Like The aforementioned War in Heaven has some incredible moments, like really bombastic chorus. But then it also this brilliant melodic section in the middle where we get like something more akin to a guitar solo that's perfectly backed up by the orchestration. Songs like Prototype, we've used the choirs to full effect and just give these choruses an absolutely huge nature to them. The final track of the album, The First Immortal, I think is for my money the best song this band has ever written it's essentially as if a band did a death metal song in the classical in a more classical structure like it doesn't have any repeating parts it's just a a motif that is built onto like an absolutely epic chorus and this build happens only over its like tiny four minute runtime but it's just so well put together the only criticism i had of this album is there are a few moments that don't quite hit as hard particularly like Confessions of a Serial Killer or Ground Zero aren't quite as epic as the rest of this but overall I I just think this is a really beautiful album and really well put together like I love that there's stuff this ambitious out there like to use an orchestra this well in metal really shows like the value of it and it's something I, I hope a lot more bands could get to do Big downside to this, though, is I've seen Septic Flesh quite a few times and they do not work as a live act, so their clean singing vocalist doesn't come on tour with them. Obviously, everything's on the backing track, and unlike a band like Flesh God Apocalypse, who sort of make a lot of adjustments to their sound to not just use the backing track throughout, Septic Flesh are very much everything's on the backing track, and actually put me off the band for quite a few years. Like, I was very into this album and saw them live a couple of times, and stopped really listening to them but going back to his album in research for this 2014 episode it's truly brilliant and honestly if this was just a studio project that wouldn't take away from anything like this is really really excellently written ambitious music <laughs> And number 10, we have the 10th studio album by the Project Hate. So the Project Hate we covered back on our 2012 episode. This is the follow-up album to that one. And they are a Swedish industrial death metal supergroup. Uh, it's mainly the kind of project of Lord K who does most of the guitars, bass, keyboards, vo- like some backing vocals, and then in- the entirety of the songwriting. Then we have vocalist Jurgen Sandstrom of grave and entombed fame. Uh, on this particular album, drummer Dirk van Bulen, who is just fucking ridiculous. Such a good drummer. Not sure what he's currently doing. Is he in Megadeth at the moment? But yeah, he, he's brilliant. He's, he's the drummer from Devon Townsend Deconstruction, among other things. The big change to the lineup of Project Hate on this album is Ruby left the vocalist of the previous album and has been replaced by Eleanor Asp. Sorry, I should say, the the sort of gimmick of, or kind of signature sound of Project Hate is these gigantic length industrial death metal tracks with a trade-off, very brutal death metal vocals and very clean, almost kind of pop female vocals. The big change of this album, and it's the kind of main criticism I have of it, is Eleanor Asp comes in and replaces the kind of more modern pop kind of vocal with quite like an 80s hard rock heavy metal kind of vocal much more like kind of harsh and scratchy delivery i've been a big p- fan of most project hate albums and i feel like some of the earlier stuff particularly on say joe ankle was doing the the clean vocals the vocals were particularly b- beautiful and particularly a counterpoint whereas in this album they're not quite as pretty sounding basically and it, you don't get that extreme sort of counterpoint all that being said Still really great, and everything about this is so well composed. Like the actual songs are truly incredible. So, the album's almost 80 minutes long and only has six tracks, and they are all these like much over 10 minute plus epics that go through so many movements and such a high degree of complexity. Kay's writing is just ridiculous ridiculous at this stage, the amount he pours into every song. This is not just simplistic, everything following the guitar line, some points the keyboards and kind of orchestration will take the lead at other points, like, there's really bass-driven grooves, then you get more, like, shreddy moments, and then just proper, full-on blasting that can move between, like, a kind of black metal feel, or a modern death metal feel, or sometimes even, like, really old Swedish death metal in places. And all with this production that's been polished by Dan to to the point of it just being absolutely enveloping. Like, the bass guitar sound on, like, most his albums is just stupid at this point. It's so, so brutal. Uh, Jürgen's vocal delivery is still one of my favourite in Death Metal. Like, he's just an incredible vocalist. And, like, I think I've said this before with Project Hate, like, the structure of the songs is essentially, like, kitchen sink music. Like, Lorcae throws everything at these like you get kind of like dance influenced moments and as i sort of before mentioned like all those other genres going on at once and building for these incredibly lengthy songs which will go they like often when the kind of clean vocals come in they will go right down to maybe just a bit of acoustic guitar or just a bit of keyboards and slowly build back up to like intense blast beats and so on Dirk's drum performance throughout is mesmerizing. Like, he never sticks to a generic beat. Everything he's doing is so over the top. And like the whole the whole kind of nature of the Project Hate is totally over the top. A kind of further selling point of this album is the ridiculous guest performances. There's a load of, of guests on it. We have Eric vonquest of Voluntary doing some vocals, Ross Doland of Immolation. Uh, again adding, adding some more kind of low-end death metal vocals. We have uh, Lasse of Candlemas adding guitar solos and Mike Weed of uh, King Diamond fame. It, it's ridiculous, like, the calibre of people he's got involved in this. It's a kind of real kind of great cross-section of basically brilliant metal from the 90s. And the the album as a whole has a beautiful flow to it. The... The songs like fit together so perfectly like Laque's really got his craft down in in terms of just constructing gigantic epic songs. there's one move on the album that doesn't quite make sense to me the second track so the first song on the album Holy ground is not safe anymore. Ends with like a really cool guitar solo and then the second track starts with one and it's this weird like clashing into each other But other than those that bit most of the moves between songs it was really great and overall the album it is a concept album I'm not quite sure what the concepts about it, it Sort of has a flow that fits a concept album one criticism I've heard from it is about the lyrics that like, there's a lot of um references in the lyrics to nursery rhymes and so on and i've heard people kind of accuse this of being stupid but actually personally i think it really works because it very much gives this impression of like lost innocence or something something very dark happening behind the story of this album Oh, another thing I've got to mention about it, just because this is such a cool idea. Because they're a studio project and I have time to mess around with this kind of thing. Lord K did this competition where essentially he put out a minute-long clip of the album. It was like, I want a guest solo over this. And just got fans to submit solos. So, like, he, there's a cool kind of clip on YouTube that I'll share, share after this of all the various solo takes for this. So he got, yeah, got sent a whole load, and the actual solo that fits on the song is properly brilliant. Like, it really stands up with Lassie and Mike Weed's solos as well, like, yeah, just really cool stuff. I've always felt the Project Hate are a deeply underrated band, mainly because I think they are, they are a studio project. I would highly advise, like, going in and just trying to give one of their albums a go. I don't know if this one's necessarily the one to start with. As aforementioned, I think, like, the vocals in some points do hold it back a little. But it's still incredibly inventive and you've not heard the Project Hate before. You've not heard something that sounds like this and it, like, calling it industrial metal almost does it a disservice. There's so much more complexity and stuff to delve into than your average like industrial metal album. A like, genuinely this is the kind of album you can listen to 20 times and still find kind of new and interesting elements to it. And it's all so well played and so well put together that Anyone with kind of a love of great musicianship or great songwriting craft, I think, could really get into this style. We have um, a band I covered back on the 2010 episode. This is Stargazer with their third album, Emerging to the Boundless. So I'm pretty much going to be reiterating what I said on the 2010 episode. This is another excellent album from these guys. They are a free piece from Australia who play a kind of very bass-guitar-driven black metal. So. Like it's it's black metal with bass guitar as a lead instrument, and it's kind of black metal and kind of the rawer early black metal kind of vein. Like there's a uh, this feels like in many ways quite a throwback album, but with a kind of execution that's probably a lot beyond um, what what any of those early bands could can muster so we get a great twin vocal attack from the Great Righteous Destroyer who is also the bass guitarist and the Serpent Inquisitor who is also the guitarist and there's kind of like a playoff against like low and high so uh the Great Righteous Destroyer also known as Denny Blake is um the vocalist for mournful Congregation as well so it's kind of coming from like a funeral doom direction into black metal like the the riffing and the songs in this album are incredibly catchy but also like there's a lot of quite memorable choruses for black metal but there also there's some moments of really good like brutality and more aggressive songs like the uh the closer of the album Incense and Alien Chaos verges on almost like death metalisms but um this kind of bass guitar playing keeps it kind of weirdly melodic throughout it's incredibly intricate really fast pick work from the bass player whereas the guitarist tends to like basically hold together riffing the drummer has quite a lot of fun with this album as well basically they're just the kind of sound you wouldn't believe possible from a power trio um i think i i gave this warning as well in the 2010 one make sure you listen to this band on good speakers because this is probably slightly less true for this album because the production is definitely an improvement on their previous one. But if you listen to this on like crappy laptop speakers or anything, it will just destroy it because so much is in the low end. Like if that's lost, these guys don't translate. But their sound is incredible and and has a kind of unique edge in black metal. I've not I've not heard people going for that almost. I guess. I'm trying to think of a good example of a kind of like very bass driven bat, like sort of bass guitar as a lead instrument. Um, actually I sort of mentioned them one on the listener suggestions episode Shabti and these guys, I think have a, a really similar overlap of the use of bass guitar. The stargazer don't get quite so creative with the tone, but it, the bass has a really great sound to it throughout it's like it's all this kind of like really fast pick stuff but it it maintains its like melodicism it doesn't have too like too high a level of attack the lyrics are all good fun kind of weird occultism um, very like as the title uh, emerging to the boundless suggests it's all very over the top um, tracks like an earth rides its endless carousel or ride the everglade of reggae noir How how however you meant to say that? I've completely butchered that pronunciation. Like, that kind of stuff's really cool. And much like their other two albums, cover is absolutely beautiful. It's a really, really interesting and striking kind of look to it. Also, unlike their previous two, this one seems deeply Australian. Like, it's a kind of um, an Aboriginal man's skin being split in half and this weird demon creature emerging from the centre in a very, like arid desert-type landscape. Yeah, so just a really cool-looking cover. It's on um, Nuclear War Productions now, which is... Nuclear War Now Productions, sorry, um, which is kind of a label more known for, like, very aggressive black metal. I would say this doesn't quite sit there, but it's still... This is not, again, like um, what we were covering earlier. This isn't true melodic black metal. It's kind of on the edge of that but still with some of the extremity and um, if you enjoyed the previous album but i mentioned the 2010 one go for this it's you, you've certainly not hear, heard black metal that sounds like this At number eight, we have some more incredibly experimental um, out there black metal, this time courtesy of Dark Descent Records. This is the debut album from uh, the, I believe, American band Fantafraxaf. This is Sacred White Noise. So previously they had one EP out before this, and they've had one EP out since. Uh, personally, I think the, the final EP they did is like an absolute masterpiece. But this particular album is still mind-blowing. It's so weird it's really really out there songwriting so much of what phantom frat stuff do structurally their songs or even individual riffs in them is completely bizarre they work a lot of ambient noise into their stuff as well but like just the guitar playing is so confusing and kind of alien like a lot of the the sort of way riffs are constructed i can't really explain what happens but there's lots of um use of very dissonant notes and lots of like kind of chord shapes and so on which shouldn't make logical sense but actually in terms of this album really work the um the album has like a, a very depressing dark nature to it as well like the lyrical contents and song titles all feel very bleak and it works with their sound because their songs aren't necessarily massively long or anything, but they do have this atmosphere that sort of worms its way in and just creates, like, a sense of dread, unease, like, rising panic, because you can't necessarily focus on any one particular bit. Like, it's a very unsettling listen, and one I think you need to give, sort of, really give you full attention to to get the, the desired effect. They're also one of those bands who, um, I believe they're a free piece, but they remain, like, completely anonymous and wear the dark hoods and all that. Which I think really works here, because going for this this kind of fucked up atmosphere, it's kind of nice not having to tie any personalities to it at all. It's just all about this, this the musical product coming out of it. As I say, they, these guys really feel like the forefront of experimenting with kind of the harsh end of black metal, or taking ideas from black metal to the most kind of mesmerizing, unpleasant place you could. It's not necessarily the most brutal thing you've ever heard, but it's got a lot to it that is almost more upsetting than kind of the more traditionally... Uh, brutal black metal bands uh, I won't go into too much detail on this one here because I think I'm going to talk or, I mean we did before when we covered it but when uh, we do our recap of 2017 I'm going to talk a lot more about their next EP but this equally is extremely worth the time if you, if you want a really upsetting unique experience Number seven, we have an album I covered in great length recently on episode 48. This is Yob's Clearing a Path to Ascend, which was an album that saw Yob kind of catapulted into the mainstream, essentially. They do a kind of um, very rock-influenced extreme doom, like their their sound is kind of rock and country guitar influenced i believe but over these kind of like huge drawn out songs like i think mean, if you want to hear us talk about them in more detail go back to that episode because i believe me and rob did quite a good job of covering that album then but yeah just to sort of recap the kind of core points of it essentially it's four tracks that Uh, really kind of evolve over their kind of 10 to like 18 minute long I think structures and really led by Mike Schultz's incredible um, quite unique guitar playing and and his ridiculously unique vocals where he goes from these kind of extremely kind of high almost classic rock vocals to a kind of more guttural growled approach and this all sort of works over the music like they're just one of those bands that, like, they have found a nice little niche in doom and have made something that not only is very original but can still pack like the huge emotional punch that you would expect from that genre. And I believe Clearing Up After Ascend is like a real highlight of their career so far. And it's, it was really good to see them getting the the kind of acclaim you wouldn't really expect of the genre for this album like it's it's nice they're finally noticed and uh, i believe like this might be that might have been that turning point where doom started becoming a kind of a bit more mainstream accessible almost hipster genre probably final album from New Jersey's Gridlink. Gridlink do a kind of technical, slightly sci-fi inspired grind. With their first two albums, Ambergray and Orphan, they went incredibly kind of just balls to the wall throughout blasting. Like, Orphan, I covered a few episodes back, and it's ridiculous. The album's about 12 minutes long. Whereas this album, Long Henna, their final one, they seem to have gone... In a kind of far more experimental, out there kind of direction. Like, so essentially, they've still got the 12 minutes of grinding from the previous album, but it's interspersed with sort of bizarre melodic instrumental moments. Like, a lot of, um, a lot of kind of moments of like kind of violin interludes and kind of almost like Japanese folk music inspired interludes between songs like this the second track the last raven the first minute of it is this really beautiful kind of melodic thing, but then the first track, Constant Autumn, is an absolute mind-blowing blast fest, but it still seems to be structured around really atypical riffing for grind. Like, the, the intro riff of the entire album feels not out of place in, like, alternative rock, but then, like, the blasts come in and, like, the the really harsh, like, very clear grind screams come in over the top, and it 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 all fits together it all works but this is such an atypical grind album i've seen this band sort of credited as being like one of the most inventive uh, bands in in modern grind and i i really think that that's quite possibly true like um, takafumi matsubara the guitarist comes up with so many weird and wonderful kind of patterns for his riffing to work over and because they're like a five piece they throw around, like, so much, like, interesting stuff, because, say, say, in that, that particular track, you have all of them blasting, going absolutely, like, you know, 100 miles an hour kind of thing, but then they'll have one guitar, and this seems to be a recurring grid thing, simplified to, like, just a tiny lead melody, like, almost like one note per bar kind of thing, and then that song fades as like the kind of grind part fades. we just get left with this little hanging lead melody that goes into your kind of interesting folk interlude and then back to completely in your face grind john chang's like lyrical delivery as well is all the high-end like kind of screaming kind of hardcore where he doesn't do like the kind of grind dual vocals of the high and low it's just all the high in your face kind of stuff and That really fits this, and the lyrics are all this, like, I think I believe it's another sci-fi concept but I haven't really managed to get my head around it, but everything about it just feels a bit atypical for grind. Like, even the album cover, which is, I'm not sure it's good, but it just, the album cover gives no hint of what you're about to listen to, and I feel that's about right, because... We couldn't. You you couldn't possibly have seen this album coming. So the album cover is they've actually got a model in for it, dressed in like some kind of sci-fi outfit over like a coloured background, and it it looks like the front cover of a computer game or something. It's it's all very left field and inventive for Grind, and that inventive in an album that's runtime is well under twenty five minutes. Like the whole. The whole discography of this band is less than an hour long but yet they are like still like hugely influential and incredibly unique in that time but not just that they're also really kind of catchy memorable stuff like each individual song on this album is just really good grind but then you have these kind of slight other um, elements that make it that much more engaging and weird and In some ways, I'd actually say this particular album might be a really good start point for people who've never managed to get into Grind before because of the other elements. It gives a bit more of a hook, a bit more something to anchor yourself with that isn't just an absolute pummeling, that might give people time to get their head around the pummeling that is Great Grind. Now, I imagine some people would accuse it of just being like, crap false grind or whatever i know there's there's some very purists around the genre but for me personally this is one of my all-time favorite grind albums i i i love the experimentation of it and i think it, as a whole it makes it just an incredible package so if you have got an hour free just listen to the entire discography of this band because they are fucking excellent groundbreaking grind to a man who's been making groundbreaking music since long before i was born this is tom gabriel fisher's Triptychon with their second full-length album melana chasmata so Trypticon, um very much picked up where tom gabriel fisher left off with celtic frost that final album monotheist has very much been Not replicated, but I'd say more expanded on by each Trypticon release. And for my money, I think this is the stronger of the uh, two Trypticon albums. So we covered their their first one a couple of episodes back. And their first one is this real dive into extremely lengthy, very punishing, extremely upsetting songs. With huge amounts of use of distortion and, like, slow builds to incredibly powerful payoffs. This album still has a lot of that, but I feel the edges have been polished just that bit more. I feel this album improved on its predecessor in a few, kind of, vaguely subtle ways, but with with the previous album, I'd criticised some of the tracks for, sort of, overusing, like, the distortion build-up. Or even, for example, like, the prolonging which is an absolutely incredible track i personally feel it's about four minutes too long like after its payoff it could have been brought to a close a bit quicker and with this album it feels like they've sort of learnt some of those lessons a lot of the songs are a little more compact and to the point but still use a lot of those elements of the previous album and monotheist that give these songs this huge punch also for an album of this length it keeps a huge amount of variation going in it the um the kind of bit of invention on this album i'd say is there's a lot more kind of subtle melodic stuff going on there's some really kind of beautiful moments with like guest female vocals on a couple of tracks mixing with some actually like beautiful lead guitar playing which i think is a new development for uh for trypticon But, say, the the opener, Tree of Suffocating Souls, is an absolute bludgeoning. But then with strange moves away from that, where you get, like, a moment of acoustic guitar and so on, but then just back to pummeling, and Tom Gabriel Fisher at one point doing essentially a feedback solo. Also, you get a lot, this song's a really good example of the playoff of uh, Tom's vocals versus V Santoro, the other guitarist's more harsh, traditional black metal screams, but then, let's say, the follow-up track uh, Bolskin House, we get this incredible melodic section in the middle with these this um, female vocal harmony over a beautiful lead guitar section that then the harmony continues and Tom's vocals are like Tom's low cleans are added to it as well, and that brings up a good point. If like Tom's vocals are incredibly varied on this album, he does, he does his classic kind of early Celtic Frost kind of gruff growling, but then he also does his kind of almost spoken word cleans, and then yes, yeah, some other things with these guest vocals and with these Santoro screams added in. Vocally, this is an incredibly varied album. So everything is playing together here to make this an extremely interesting listen. Later in the album as well, we get some surprises that are just totally outside the the expected. Uh, We have Demon Pack, which is this slow kind of invocation type thing. Um, It sort of builds up. It really has the atmosphere of a ritual. And then we have In Death Sleep, which is kind of the one of the most haunting songs he's ever written with this kind of refrain of trying to speak to this dead this dead woman Emily throughout um it, yeah almost in some ways almost childlike it's i find it a very disturbing track and then the album closes with waiting which is this incredibly subtle and mellow outro with some beautiful clean vocals and lead guitar stuff over a very simplistic, extremely subtle bit of backing. The thing I haven't mentioned about this album as well is, like, the whole production and feel of it is incredible. It it has a weight to it, particularly in the guitars, that few Doom albums can maintain. Like, it just... It's absolutely punishing it when it needs to be. When the kind of more blasting drums come in and the guitars go a bit quicker, This is some of the more punishing music you'll ever listen to, and and makes those moments of beauty kind of all the more rewarding for it. Yeah, I really do think, um, sort of going back through this at length, this might be one of the strongest things uh, Tom Gabriel Fisher has ever put out, which is fascinating considering he's a guy who was making incredibly interesting and innovative music in 1985, and in 2014 like almost 30 years later he's still pushing the boundaries and still doing stuff in a totally unique way and as well as like finally truly found an audience for it he he like he's now well known enough that you know people will jump on a new frottcom release and so on and it's great to see someone who's been that experimental and out there for most of their their life still being able to push the boundaries and do incredible stuff like this and as again with like say like the behemoth album this is another complete package with a beautiful hr geiger cover which is as mesmerizing and strange as the music on the album and again well worth getting like the vinyl or the cd because there's lyrical explanations for every track which um Thomas clearly put a lot of effort into the very like, the lyrical explanations are poetically written, like let alone the, the actual lyrical content of this album, which again is really cool stuff. It very, very evocative writing. You are the soil You're Your word This is the ground. have a band i think me and rob have spoken very fondly about in the past but bears repeating this is the debut album from artificial brain labyrinthine constellation uh, put out on profound law records what artificial brain do is essentially brutal death metal but with a real technical expertise and, and kind of a huge jazz influence as well that keeps it from being the your standard tired slams so the reason it sits so deeply in the Brutal Death Metal camp is uh vocalist Big Will has these ultra, ultra low gutturals, you know, the the such the extreme end of like those kind of like just ridiculous lows, but over this kind of extremely brutal but extremely creative music. They they're a hard band to kind of describe because their songs are so complex and ever-changing, but gets so short and to the point. I think the whole album's under 40 minutes long, like, no track exceeds the five-minute mark, but they're all so weird and out there. Another band like Gridlink, who are deeply um, rooted in sci-fi kind of concepts, so again, sidestepping classic... ...like negative traits of brutal death metal... ...of not just focusing on gore and violence... ...but actually these interesting sci-fi stories... ...which you well and truly would have to read the lyrics... ...to get your head around there... ...and <laughs> Will's vocal delivery is not understandable... ...but that's not a problem at all... ...and the songs, yeah, they do just fit these kind of ideals... ...because the music is so strange and out there... ...but yet, yeah, as much as it's complex and all over the place still has a grounding in catchiness and melody and groove. There's still all of that present on the album. In fact, like a lot of these songs are really groovy in places. In some ways actually, um it sort of sidesteps the whole being brutal thing. Like it is, but the something strange about the level of creativity involved in this, it it doesn't come across as maybe quite as punishing as some of the the more straight-down-the-line versions of these albums would have. I remember a while ago, um, I was at a Friends and we were listening to, like, basically a load of vinyl we'd brought recently, and this was like a totally non-metal crowd, and I put on um the the next album by Artificial Brain, uh, Infrared Horizon, because everyone's like, I want to know what this sounds like, uh, but because the cover's so beautiful. And I thought it was going to get this, oh god, turn this the fuck off, I can't deal with this kind of reaction, from essentially a non-metal crowd, but actually everyone I was like, oh this isn't that heavy, I like, I've like heard Demi Borger, this isn't as heavy as that, which I thought was strange because to my mind this is rooted in brutal death metal which can tend towards being the heaviest genre out there, but because of like the jazz nature and the kind of almost atmospheric elements going on in places of, of, on this album it doesn't come across as such a bludgeoning, and Infrared Horizon obviously follows in very similar steps to this. I remember also as well, like, I've, I've heard a lot of people say Big Will is what puts them off it. Like, his kind of super low, kind of completely, kind of almost zero, like, enunciation kind of vocal approach. Zero enunciation is unfair, but like, something completely impenetrable vocal approach really puts them off. But um, a friend of mine said to me when he first heard this, like, he's not a, like a death metal fan at all. He said if he'd heard this before he'd heard any other death metal, he probably wouldn't have a negative opinion of Screams. Like actually to him, this was the perfect version of Screams because they were so separated from like a human delivery. They actually, ha- they, they don't feel that human because they are so guttural and ridiculous and they all have no hint of the person doing them's accent behind them or anything like that. Also, because of that vocal delivery, to keep things interesting, most of the rest of the band do um, additional backing vocals, plus a couple of guests they um particularly uh, Paulo Pagantalon's on this, who does some incredible, like, kind of high, uh, I believe, inhale screams on this, which just add another texture. He's an interesting character as well. Um, so Big Will from this is one of the people on the Heavy Hole podcast, and Paolo is, like, one of the more interesting guests they have like the guy is the seemingly the leading expert in brutal death metal his episodes on ping are well worth uh, looking up but yeah i'm, I'm getting off track w- with the album as well much like the follow-up absolutely beautiful cover done by uh paolo garadi who's you know possibly verging on being one of the more overused artists in uh extreme metal at the moment but I still really love his stuff and um talking of possibly overused artists the it's recorded produced and mixed by colin marston and has that kind of classic colin marston doing extreme death metal kind of sound to it there's you know there's echoes of gorguts and that kind of music in here as well and i think in terms of the writing as well that fits very nicely because there is elements of that Gorgut's like experimentation going on although as I say these guys are more rooted in kind of jazzy structures and melody rather than Gorgut's like almost atonal riffing at points it doesn't have quite so much of that but it does have the kind of very experimental structures and use of very unique bass and drum work where it's nothing's just following the guitar pattern it's very complex, well-crafted music. second album by the Australian bass band Neoblisgaris. This is Citadel, released on Season of Mist. So, if you're not familiar with Neoblisgaris, their sound is a kind of very progressive technical avant-garde meets neoclassical I would say Death metal at its core, but it's it's effectively a very modern extreme metal sound, but with a huge amount of like classical and avant-garde influences in there. the The thing that really kind of separates it on that front is um, the fact we have a clean vocalist slash violin player in the form of Tim Charles on this album, over a, essentially a your standard five piece death metal band, and with Citadel's we see them sort of kind of evolving from their their debut which is an absolutely beautiful brilliant album in its own right this one sees them going whereas the first one is like near 80 minutes long with seven kind of very separate tracks this album is only six tracks long and a Effectively, it's just free movements. It's free kind of main song ideas with little interludes between it and the runtime's like under 50 minutes. It's a very different experience, I think, listening to the two albums. Previously, I'd always rated this as the far superior, but actually, sort of in doing the research for all these episodes, I'm coming around to the first one still being better. Although, this takes away nothing from what is on display here. Citadel is a monumental piece of work a lot of the songs on this like the two main themes the two main kind of tracks painters of the temple and then devour me colossus are well over 10 minutes and they are these great building epics that go through all sorts of um kind of melodic ideas and moving from extremely brutal to extremely melodic kind of probably more so than any of the other bands we've mentioned today like the kind of dynamic range of this album is ridiculous like so the album starts with like a three-minute interlude which is just like kind of experimental violin playing over some gentle piano and then like the first track just kicks off with blasting and Zenor's vocals often like double in kind of high and low screams and it's utterly brutal until like it starts giving way to violin, and then eventually into super melodic, almost almost like it too melodic in places. Clean vocals and clean melodies, and then in these parts where we're more focused on a lead violin melody, the bass will start doing something incredibly interesting. Often as well doing this really clever kind of thing where the bass will start playing the main melodic theme of the next section before the rest of the band get there, sort of hinting at what's coming next at all times. The when they go for the cleaner moments it's really really pretty beautiful music it's you know it's, the cleaner moments alone is the kind of music you can show your mum but then the heavy stuff is still pretty damn brutal we're not we're not talking like really really extreme but you know you've got to be into death metal or black metal i think to get your head around this band i don't think they have a huge amount of fans who can't deal with that the kind of screaming elements of them particularly say like a track like uh i'm gonna butcher this pronunciation firerick uh the the middle track of the album uh the first six minutes of that despite a little bit of clean vocals in the chorus is more or less like a well-structured death metal song but then we get a kind of strange move to quiet and the beautiful melodic ending is just Tim Charles properly shredding on the violin it's, it's it's him getting the the giant classic rock solo at the end of this but done on violin there's also some really um some really great interludes with um sort of something will fade out and then there's two parts of the album this happens and the bass will do this cool kind of quite complex like tapping lead that will go on for ages and other instruments will build up around it. Like I love that sound of the the kind of bass tapping and so on and like there's there's elements of like how Stargazer used the bass in this to give like these kind of clear melodies over kind of more more just brutal riffing like that, that's kind of really well executed uh Daniel Preslin's drum performance is just excellent. The guy is a really, one of the really great modern drummers at the moment. And this whole band, like both the guitarists also, immensely complex players. I remember, like, I've seen them live a few times now, and every time I see them, I just can't believe the shapes of chord they're playing. Like, their hands seem to be able to, like, easily able to bridge the, like, seven fret kind of chords, where you're like... Yeah, I just don't even know how hands hand stretches in that way. So these guys are all kind of incredibly seasoned musicians, and with this album they've just created something very focused, and as I say, for a band this proggy, quite short, but it it just flows so perfectly. Um, Yeah, it's just a really brilliant, beautiful piece. I, I can't really find any flaws with it, it's why I'm having such a hard time sort of playing it off against their first album. I think the first one for my money these days just wins out by virtue of having more material executed to as high a standard. number two, we have an album that I think many of you will not be familiar with, um, but you should go out and rectify that right away. This is an absolutely bizarre, beautiful, inventive album. This is the second and final album by the Swedish death metal band Morbus Krohn called Sweven. It is a truly unique album. In in a kind of time where we are oversaturated by HM2 pedal-wielding, like, straight-up entombed clone bands, Morbus Crone found a way to walk a route that is unknown in death metal. This album is so bizarre and creative and just totally out there Uh, to to the point actually where when I first heard it I could not get my head around it at all I just didn't for for like two years I got it when it came out because I heard some really positive reviews and for like two years I just didn't get it but now I've put the time in and really let myself be absorbed by it I think it's utterly mesmerising and it's truly a genius work of art and one of the most interesting death metal albums released in the last decade, easily. So, what Morbus Grun do is, their their kind of style is old school in many ways. Like, it certainly doesn't have the punch or attack of modern death metal. It's, it's very subtle and understated. Like, and I think this is why I couldn't get my head around it at first. Like, what is going on is very hidden, um, but if you give yourself time and let yourself be absorbed by it, It's truly mesmerizing. The riffing is so technical and complex at all times, but never really delving into showy territory. It always just sounds like, oh yeah, that's that's the riffs. This is this is the natural thing to be doing here. But they they are truly bizarre. Like a lot of the guitar and bass work is highly confusing and out there, but it's all done in, like, it's obviously in quite high tuning, the guitars aren't massively distorted, like, I, I don't believe they're going for that HM2, like, buzzsaw sound, like, they got a very different tone to them, but this still does have an element of old Swedish death metal, like, I, I don't, I couldn't tell you exactly how and where, but, It's in there. I guess, actually, the the thing that really gives it that sound is the vocal approach of Robert Anderson, who is a truly brilliant screamer, but he's on that kind of Swedish death metal high end. But he's, like, I can't think of a Swedish, like, classic Swedish death metal vocalist who I think is better than this guy. His voice is incredible. Also, he's the guitarist and main songwriter of the album. Um, The other guitarist, uh, Edvin writes one track on this but otherwise it's all Robert Anderson's uh work and it I, I just find myself so completely mesmerized by this album it's it's truly beautiful it's impossible to to predict it moves through very interesting mellow moments where you get like acoustic guitar but then it still gets like the heavier bits where you get kind of really cool blasting or like d-beat drumming over these very unique guitar and bass patterns there's moments where it allows it to break like it allows itself to break out into what would be considered a traditional guitar solo but they're so few like these moments of normality like that are so few and far between and, and also engaged in a lot of instrumental tracks which are totally out there as well. This is just such a unique album. The whole presentation of it is very atypical for Swedish death metal as well. The, um, the cover is really beautiful and actually the entire lyric book of the album is full of... Bizarre original pieces of art. Um, every every track has its own artwork, which I really love. I think that's an incredibly nice touch, and it is all in this this beautiful painted style. Yeah, if I'm, it sounds like I'm just ridiculously heaping praise on this album, it's because I think this is one of the most unique things I, like I've come across in this kind of world of Swedish death metal. It's, it, since forever, it's, it is one of the most unique releases ever from that genre, and weirdly enough, picked up by Century Media. It's funny, I was listening to it earlier today, after uh, finishing the book Annihilation, and felt there's some really interesting parallels there of like, you know, that's that's a book about um, sort of an alien being... Like recognizing hum like sort of the biology of earth and sort of rearranging it without truly understanding it, this feels like an alien being got hold of death metal and rearranged it based on some alien logic that we we could not see or ever fathom, but made this this kind of like just completely out there sound that is in equal parts kind of mesmerizing. And yet disturbing, but yet beautiful at the same time. It, it it has it walks that very fine line. The whole album is extremely dreamlike quality. Actually, like you can very much. It's one of those albums you can put on, and if you like zone out in the right way, you'll just go off into a surreal kind of dream world with it. It, it is such a unique and well executed album, and it's a shame this band only did the two, but. If this is your album to go out on, bloody hell, that's a landmark, and and it's done by essentially kids. Like I think most of the lineup for this album were in like their early twenties when I recorded this. I can't believe a band hitting their creative peak that early on. It it's utterly incredible. So if you want to know what they've gone on to do since, um, both both the guitarists have cinched. Uh, I don't know, I believe it's um let's just make sure I get this right. Um uh they've joined or briefly joined Entombed, the not Entombed AD, the other the other Entombed as their full live lineup. And I've just noticed that obviously the current version of Entombed has Nicky Anderson back on drums and Robert has the same surname. So I wonder if there's a relation possibly not or possibly extremely creative death metal writing runs in that family who knows anyway yeah just do yourself a favor get this album and give it the time it deserves it really you you won't hear this again you won't hear anything like this i don't believe anyone will do anything like this again in the future it's it's a totally unique statement in death metal So, what could be better than that level of uniqueness? Well, I'm gonna have to put out there what I think is one of the most unique albums of not only the decade, but probably like this century so far, this is Voices with their second album, London. So Voices, probably most famous for featuring uh, long-time Akakaka drummer David Gray and current uh, Akakaka keyboard player. Uh, Samuel Liones. um, but also we have uh, Peter Benjamin um, on guitar and vocals, and the lineup is rounded out by Dan Abler on bass, who also does a lot of the kind of recording work for this band. So their sound sits in such an odd place. Like they are essentially a, at their core, a progressive black metal band, but then they have so so many other influences going on there. There's a true love of, like, gothic music in there. There's elements from, like, death metal, but then there's elements from other, like, sort of more extreme, noisy stuff in there. I think, as well, we see a huge influence of bands like Silencer and Ved and or Virus on not just the vocal performance, but some of the song structures. One of the things that makes it sound so interesting is that the, I've heard from interviews and so on that actually the entire structure of it was written by virtue of the band improvising. These songs were not things one member brought a whole completed piece into the rest of the band. Someone would start playing and other members would improvise to create complex extreme metal songs. Like, improvisation in extreme metal is... Very few and far between, really, and I think this is why this album has such an incredibly unique sound to it. There's a lot of other truly bizarre elements in this. The album is interspersed throughout by uh, David Gray, the drummer, doing spoken word, nar- like uh, narrative pieces in between. Uh, the songs, but these are like rather than being a stop and a a spoken word narrative, these are perfectly woven into the songs. So like as a song fades out, you'll get the noise of falling rain and then David Gray narrating the story of this main character walking down the street and or you'd hear like background street noises kind of fading out of the end of a given track and then these will perfectly give way to the next song a uh, uh, points as a guest um uh, female spoken word person as well who will like does insane stuff like there's there's a bit where they sort of repeat each other slightly out of time and this gives way into static and then like, the next song bursts out of it it's it's such interesting unique music the the start of the album is it wonderfully off-putting, where we have an acoustic guitar, piano, and clean vocal uh, piece, which I assume is entirely performed by Peter Benjamin. And it's just this beautiful, melodic, very sad uh, track that then, just out of nowhere, suddenly the next song, Music for the Recently Bereaved, explodes and just absolute blasting black metal fury but with this this strange like twin vocal approach where you get occasionally like very harsh shrieks but then also very clean like virus-esque uh, vocals musically these songs are very complexly structured they they move through so many different elements and almost seemingly at random at points like the delineation of tracks is impossible to follow points where it will break into kind of spoken word or move to like an acoustic melody instead of like a more extreme one are so at total random but it really fits with the atmosphere, and the, like the whole album as well is trying to tell this story of a sort of central character having a complete mental breakdown, and it fits so well with that. They said as well, like, the improvisation that resulted in the writing of this informed the story of this main character. They, as they wrote, the story evolved to fit the music they had written, so if whatever turn the music takes, that's the turn... the the central character would take and that's just such a mind-blowing kind of way of putting something like this together it is a really really excellent concept album in the fullest extent where the concept is so core to it that it it couldn't exist outside of that like it's all actually splitting this album up for individual tracks to play live almost feels slightly weird in light of that like it's such a kind of beautiful continuous piece But yeah, there's so many elements on this that are experimental in ways, ways I just never think of. The uh, track towards the centre of the album, The Antidote, is this really brilliant slow build, where essentially it's like one riff for an entire seven minute long song, but starting out in like sort of one clean guitar and some very clean vocals, and then just building heavier and heavier to the end point where it's like full-on shrieking over like blasting drumming, but it's still the same theme. And then after that song, after a small passage of narration, we get the fuck trance, which is one of the most upsetting kind of starts to a song you'll ever hear. It's like this utterly dissonant guitar over a like one of David Gray's like very kind of almost robotic blast beats, but then with these sort of like clean and shrieked vocals. And when, if you're not familiar with silencer, they're very, like, the way silencer vocals sound is this super high-pitched, almost pained um, sound. Like, it doesn't sound like a normal vocalist. It sounds like, you know, someone in the grips of absolute horror. And Peter Benjamin, I know, is deeply influenced by that Silencer album and is very much doing a really faithful recreation of those vocals on it, which just results in this song that is just from hell. It is so, so intense. But even that eventually breaks out into a kind of quite cool melodic element. There is so... no song on this album sounds like another song on it. There's so many ideas that are really unique to this album not even just like this band this album they they do a few things on it i've never seen recreated on the track megan there is what i can only describe as an atmospheric drum solo so i've over the years like if you've been listening to this podcast for a long time i've gone on and on about how i think david gray is one of the true drumming greats in modern extreme metal and this this track shows that off to such an extent it he he's left with near enough nothing happening, but creates two minutes of incredibly interesting atmospheric music just by playing a standard metal kit, like it, you know, your standard rock or metal drum kit. It's really, really excellent, and his his drum work throughout this album really leads it because actually this album leans far more heavily on the drums, the vocals, and then say like piano and other noises than it does the guitars. The guitars. The guitars are very much there and they they help to build it, but they're never really front and centre or anything. There's like there's one guitar solo on the entire album, and a lot of the riffs aren't really basing their groove around the guitars. The guitars are doing more complex, strange, atmospheric things, whereas the drums are and the bass are where you're really getting the groove from in most of these songs. And you know, this story going throughout resolves in kind of the most bleak and depressing way the whole album is incredibly dark i mean it's even the the kind of picture they've gone for the cover like it's meant to be very much rooted in what london is like so the cover is like a kind of grim london skyscape shown in black and white and this there's something so incredibly british about this something so deeply rooted in like london city life and that kind of isolation you can only get in a really big city where you're surrounded by people but understand none of it like that's so deeply rooted in the story and the story is so brilliantly represented in the music the, just every time i listen to this album i am blown away by the level of intricacy the level of creativity and and the amount of emotional depth they create with all these songs it's genuinely one of the most incredible albums i've ever heard and and i think like a high point in despite these guys like having a very kind of deep career like a based in a lot of bands like aforementioned akikoker antichrist imperium as well there is like i don't think any of those bands have quite hit a peak like this this is yeah just one of my favorite albums ever i absolutely love london and really hope you go go out and give it a try i it's not going to be for everyone i get that this is something i love and most people i don't think get or or have even come across to be perfectly honest but it, it is really rewarding if you can get past the initial barrier of just like the weirdness and extremity of it so that's my uh list for 2014 um obviously let us know what what I missed, like, there's so many good albums from this year. I'm sure I have skipped over, you know, 50-odd, utterly brilliant ones. And as usual, I think I've more heavily focused on the, the kind of avant-garde and sort of the black metal end of things. There's got to be some true greats from the kind of, like, deaf and thrash camps as well. So, yeah, hit me up on social media, Phil's Breakfast Metal on Facebook, at Breakfast Metal on Twitter, or if you want to send, like, a longer thing to me, uh, metal at gmail.com. But yeah, I'd love to know what you think. Um, we're going to have another one of these coming up soon. Like, I'm going to try and get... Basically, so, into early 2019, we'll have each year addressed. Obviously, years like 17 and 18, we've already done in detail. I'll probably just go over and add a few bits of... Albums I completely missed off those lists earlier on, but going to have gonna hopefully have this series completed soon and then that'll culminate in my top 10 of the entire decade which i should ha- hopefully have out early 2020 but yeah um get in touch uh let us know what you thought of this and let us know you know other stuff you'd like me to cover like or episodes you'd like me to do with rob we can do in the more like kind of more discussion format and uh, of course like you know racial reviewers on itunes um but yeah thanks a lot for listening